Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. We are joined today by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Stefanik recently emerged as a star during President Trump's impeachment hearings. But before that, she was the youngest ever woman elected to Congress. We spoke with Congresswoman Stefanik about impeachment, and we also covered Republicans' reputation among millennials, Iran, education, and climate change. That was Max Frost you just heard from, who, by the way, just got back from Mexico. And stay tuned for the end of the show where he'll tell a story from his time abroad. This is Max Tui, and up next you'll hear from Matt Weinstein. And one more thing about Max Frost. He is also a constituent of Congresswoman Stefanik's. I do have a fantastic story. Stay tuned to the end for that. And yeah, Glens Falls, New York, my hometown, is in New York's 21st district, which runs from north of Albany to the Canadian border, including the Adirondacks, Saratoga, Lake Placid, and Fort Drum. And speaking of Lake Placid, we should point out the Congresswoman had a great framed jersey of Mike Arruzioni, the hero of the 1980 American hockey team that defeated the Soviets. He scored their game-winning goal, played at Lake Placid. Also, as a reminder, Banter is available every week. We've also got a great newsletter. Email us at banter at AEI.org if you want to be on that. Keep you apprised of all our actions. But for now, without further ado, here is Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Congresswoman Zephonic, thank you so much for coming on Banter today. I'm excited to be on Banter. We're excited to have you here. So perfect. When you were first elected in 2015, you were the youngest ever woman elected to Congress. Many people our age think that the Republican Party can be hostile to both women and young people. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that view is not based on reality. If you look at the past few years, um, there is a growing movement of conservatives, of Republican young people who are really stepping up. Um, when I ran for office in 2014, I did not know I would be the youngest woman ever elected to Congress. That I found out in the middle of the campaign process. And a lot of uh, my colleagues now really tried to learn the lessons from that campaign and my candidacy to try to help recruit other young people. And I think, you know, sometimes the media really puts a spotlight on young up-and-comer Democratic members and not as much on the Republicans. And when I think about the amazing young voices we have in the Republican conference, I think of Mike Gallagher, who is a millennial, who served in the Marines, graduated from Princeton, uh, is a great member that represents a district in Wisconsin. Brian Mast is a very young member, double amputee, uh, served in the military as well, represents a district in Florida. And what I'm excited about going into 20, 2020, is here already, is there's a number of young people, and particularly women, who are stepping up to run for office. Um, so the Republican Party needs to do a better job of working to make sure that our message resonates with young people. And I think the focus on economic opportunity and this growing economy that we are experiencing today, I think that's a real opportunity for Republicans and the conservative movement to regain some of those young voters that we may have lost uh, previously. Congresswoman Stefanik, a lot of young people, a lot of fellow millennials are animated by a certain set of issues. So that could be student debt, climate change, and 
you talk about framing the message so that it resonates more with young people. Is there a place in the Republican Party for those messages to get more attention? And are they properly being addressed? Absolutely, there's a place in the Republican Party for those issues to get more attention. And I've tried to be a leader on both of those issues, but one in particular that is important to my district is the issue of climate change and conservation. Um, I represent a district in upstate New York. I represent almost all of the Adirondacks. Um, it's a very nuanced district in terms of policy positions. So even the most conservative voters understand the importance of protecting the environment and pursuing conservation policies. And if you think back to you know, the Teddy Roosevelt era of the Republican Party. Conservation is conservative. This is about making sure that we protect our natural resources for the next generation. And a fellow New Yorker as well. Yes, Teddy exactly. Roosevelt. And one of my favorite presidents. Um, yes. I, I love reading biographies about Teddy Roosevelt. So I think you are seeing Republicans step up to the plate on climate issues. And particularly if you look at polling, even the most self-identified, very conservative millennials believe that climate change is an issue that we need to address. And you know, there's a lot of different proposals out there. One is innovation, investing in renewable energy resources. An area that I've tried to focus on is leveling the playing field for renewable energy sources in addition to wind and solar. So for so long, there was a focus on wind and solar tax credits. Uh, which I've supported in my district, but we also need to take into consideration hydropower, um, biomass, which is a huge opportunity for my district, both in job creation, but also clean energy. And um, I've tried to tackle that issue, not only supporting these specific biomass and hydropower projects in my district, but also from a national security perspective, making sure that we are investing in energy independence and investing in those renewable energy resources. So I do think you're seeing that. There was a great article in the New York Post this weekend about these conservative voices that are stepping up to tackle issues like climate and making sure that it's not the left that has a monopoly on those issues. Conservatives are putting forth common sense solutions. Yeah, I'm happy you brought that up because AEI has put out polling ourselves on millennial conservative views on climate change, and it is a big issue. But I think a lot of people in our peer group that we talk to, they do want a lot more concrete proposals as well. And one of them that gets thrown around a lot, maybe this is just a think tank thing, but is carbon taxation. And there's been those Republican elder statesmen, I think Baker and Schultz put out a carbon tax and dividend plan where you kind of keep it revenue neutral for everybody. What is, uh, what's your general opinion on carbon taxation? I oppose the carbon tax. Um, I come to this from the perspective of representing a very rural, economically disadvantaged community. And you, if you look at the impacts on rural communities, but also um, people from socioeconomic backgrounds that are struggling, that is a, a, a challenging tax hike. And I ran on not raising taxes. What I do think is interesting is looking at the innovation in the private sector and incentivizing that innovation. Because the United States has been a leader in terms of cutting carbon emissions. And uh, that is something we should be proud of. We should be talking more about that. And we should, looking into, we should be looking into what policies have led to that really private sector um, leadership in tackling this issue. Uh, I also think it's important to talk about the United States policies, but we need to do so uh, from a global perspective in that China and India are you know, growing polluters. And if we want to tackle this, this is a global issue, and you've got to get uh, developing countries like China and India to be a part of the solution rather than continuing to be part of the problem. We talk about a shifting political landscape here in terms of new issues that are motivating people. Your district in 2008 and 2012 was won by President Obama. 
And then in 2016, President Trump carried it, and you were elected in 2014 and have won re-elections at significant margins. How did the Republican Party flip it? What did the voters, how did, why did they change their minds? What animates them now? That's a great question. So um, you are right. President Obama won my district by 12 points in 2008. He won by eight points uh, in his reelection in 2012. And then President Trump won the district by 14 points. So one of the swingiest districts in the country. Um, my district has a history of voters who don't vote party line. They really vote for the candidate. And what I found is people were feeling fundamentally left behind uh, after the Obama administration and during the tail end of the Obama administration. And they really wanted a new direction. I think President Trump's message of uh, tackling economic growth, not just for urban areas, but also rural and suburban communities. I think his message on trade, I have a district that's very reliant upon trade, but there um, was this frustration that we weren't getting the better end of the deal from the United States. So that renegotiation of NAFTA in the USMCA, that's very popular in my district. Um, my district is also, you know, constitutionally, constitutional issues are important in my district. Second uh, Amendment. Second right. Amendment is very important in my district, and that goes back, frankly, to the history of, I represent the cradle of the revolution. I represent the Battle of Saratoga, Fort Ticonderoga, so really the birthplace of um, the American ideal. So those constitutional issues were also important, and I anticipate that President Trump is going to win uh, re-election in my district particularly as you're seeing the Democratic candidates run further and further to the left, the brand of AOC-type Democrats does not resonate in my district. That's very disconnected from upstate New York. So I, I'm excited. What I was most excited about is the voters that I earn, and I stand for election every two years, are from both parties and independents. So I won my first re-election by 35 points, which and I had a, a strong opponent, and this past cycle um, I was proud to win by 14 points in a year that was a wave year for Democrats. So that was a significant margin of victory, and that's because I focus on getting things done and really delivering results. Now, at the same time, the opposition running against you in the next election, Tedra Cobb, fundraised a million dollars in a weekend um, during the impeachment hearings. So do you think that the, the impeachment overall and kind of Trump's toxicity among a lot of the population because, you know, his views on immigration or just his kind of personality is giving fire to the, the Democrats that will help them win in 2020? Or do you think those issues really don't and matter? And by the way, I voters? think her fundraising uh, numbers or your opponent's fundraising numbers, that's in large part a compliment to you. And I think a lot of the national spotlight you got for your for how you did in the impeachment hearings. Well, yes. So I think President Trump, as I said, he continues to be popular in our district. And what's interesting is despite kind of the DC media and the Twitter vortex uh, meltdown, if you will, over the impeachment hearings, very disconnected with what voters think at home. So we got more positive calls during the impeachment hearings than I've ever gotten before from, from constituents in the district. We did get negative calls from California, but I don't represent San Francisco, I don't represent California, and I don't represent Hollywood, which was really who funneled money to support my opponent. And what I was very excited about is while she did raise over a million dollars, I raised $3.2 million. So that was a historic level of support from donors in my district, small dollar donors, but donors across the country. And I think where the Democrats are going to be in real trouble is there seems to be an obsession with supporting anything that's anti-Trump. 
And when I talk to voters, when I go home, I was home this weekend, I go home every weekend, people want us to get things done and they view impeachment as a distraction and they would rather make their voices heard at the ballot box this November because we've seen how political it has been, uh, particularly recently with Nancy Pelosi withholding the impeachment articles. That has backfired for the Democrats. Um, so, you know, I want to continue getting the work done for the district, but there has been extremely positive support um, from my constituents. So obviously in the impeachment, hearings, you were, you, were, you were considered the star of the week, especially in early November. And on that subject, you talk about a lot of voters. It's not affecting their day-to-day -day lives. However, you also bring up earlier in this interview the importance of constitutional adherence and, and you know, staying true to our Constitution. And my question is, even if the Democrats' tactics have been unfair and very you know, motivated by partisanship. Do you consider President Trump guilty of what he's been accused of? Uh, so I tried to approach impeachment from a constitutional perspective because I think that we are setting important precedent for potential future Congresses where you have a divided government, whether it's Republican president or Democratic president. And I think what Democrats really pursued was they don't like President Trump's personality, they don't like how he governs, and they've been focused on impeachment, frankly, since the day after he was elected. We saw this with their, you know, thinking the Mueller report would provide the silver bullet for impeachment and the disappointment when that was not the case. The way I approached the impeachment process, and I wasn't anticipating the media coverage, I just did my homework and made sure I read the tens of thousands of pages of depositions. And if you look at my questions, they were very polite to each of the witnesses, but it just really read back their deposition testimony for the American public to hear, because those were in closed doors. So impeachment is constitutionally defined as high crimes and misdemeanor, bribery or treason. And that's how I approach this, is did any of the actions of President Trump rise to the level of impeachable offenses? Each of the witnesses that I asked that question said no, uh, high crimes, misdemeanors, bribery, or treason. So again, you know, the media sometimes confuses the, uh, the Democrats' visceral dislike for the mm -hmm. president and mm -hmm. uh, their obsession with impeachment. So I, I'm proud of my questions. I think uh, this is a very bad precedent that Democrats have set for future administrations and future Congresses when you do have a disagreement uh, on policy issues. We don't want to devote too much time to impeachment because, as you said, voters back home don't seem to be caring as much about it. But Maybe to wrap up, we hear sometimes now Democrats saying that they regret not supporting the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Do you th and you talk about wanting to set a good precedent. Do you think sometime 10 years down the line, if there's some Democratic president, for example, not wanting to give foreign aid to Israel unless they do the political preferences that they want, I mean, could Republicans come to regret this, do you think? Well, I want to push back a little bit on that. So Ukraine did receive the military or the security assistance, and that is an important fact to consider as we were having the impeachment hearings, is that there was no investigation into the Bidens, and Ukraine did, in fact, receive the security assistance. Um, the hold on aid is part of a broader hold on foreign aid within the government. The OMB um, witness testified to that, is that this this is part of President Trump's making sure that our, our taxpayer dollars, and I believe people in my district support this, making sure that they're not going to corrupt entities. Um, I think 
the political party that will regret how they tackled impeachment is going to be uh, Democrats. And you're seeing that in polling with independents, that over the course of the two weeks of the high-profile hearings, support for impeachment plummeted 20 points among independent voters. And those voters are going to determine who the next president is. It's those swing voters in swing districts like Ohio, Iowa, Pennsylvania um, that will, their votes are important. If they vote Democrat or Republican, will determine who the next president is. Now, to pivot away from this topic, Iran is obviously the biggest headline right now. Everyone's talking about it. People in your district, where I'm from, I know firsthand, they do not care about Iran too much. You know, they want jobs, they want economic opportunity. People in the same Midwestern states, I think a lot of them really do not care about foreign policy. The last thing they want is another regime change war in the Middle East. What do you see as our end game in the Middle East, and how is the administration strategy working? Well, Max, I would disagree a little bit. I know that from your perspective in Glens Falls, I actually do believe they care deeply about our national security, but particularly because on the other side of the district, I represent Fort Drum, home of the 10th Mountain Division, the most deployed unit in the U.S. Army since 9-11. They care very much because it impacts their families' lives is in terms of their deployment and their operational tempo. Um, and I also come at this from the perspective of, I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened, and um, I think that we need to make sure that we have a strong counter-terrorist policy. Um, Soleimani is a bad guy, one of the worst, one of the world's most heinous terrorists. Um, he has hundreds of American uh, troops that uh, were killed. Uh, he has their blood on his hand, over 200 Fort Drum soldiers in the 10th Mountain Division. Soleimani is responsible for their deaths and thousands wounded. Um, so I do think the president made the right decision. I think what is um, what has been very successful is that this was a strategic deterrent. Uh, as you see, Iran has definitely taken a step back in the short term in terms of um, pursuing their uh, strategy of targeting U.S. embassies or U.S. assets. I think we're going to have to wait and see over the long term because we know Iran uh, typically pursues their strategy through proxies, whether it's Hezbollah, Hamas, uh, or sowing discord as they have in Syria and Yemen. Uh, but I think this was a strong decision, and I believe that under the Obama administration, the I didn't support the Iranian nuclear deal, but I think this the vision that President Obama had of leading from behind was not working. And we saw that Soleimani and others were able to metastasize, whether it was the rise of ISIS, whether, again, you know, the uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, the Syrian uh, tragedy, and uh, frankly, civil war in Syria. A lot of that was driven by Soleimani's uh, investment and um, pursuit uh, through proxy forces. So are you dismayed at all when we pull back troops from Syria like we did? I guess several months ago, maybe in the summer, or Afghanistan? Uh, dismayed is, I would not characterize it as dismayed. I think that Syria has been a disaster going back to uh, President Obama. I think the establishment of a red line and then allowing uh, Bashar al-Assad to cross the wet red line with using chemical weapons against his own people, um, I think that there was not a comprehensive strategy towards Syria. And because there was a void that was left, Russia and others, and Soleimani, were able to fill that void and uh, target the Syrian Democratic Forces. Um, the Syria, the decision to withdraw our special operations forces, that was a decision that I disagreed with uh, when the president made it because I do think it's important uh, that we're countering Iranian influence, that we are countering the Assad regime, and that there's a better future for the Syrian people. That's not to say that I support endless wars, uh, but the Middle East is going to impact us 
all of our NATO allies and the investment in terrorist organizations as they target U.S. troops, U.S. embassies, that has an impact on our national security. You, in addition to Iran, which is taking up a lot of national headlines as a potential crisis, an ongoing, what some people consider to be a crisis, is the political division in this country. And you are known as one of the more bipartisan members of Congress. As you are on the front lines of our democracy, representing the 21st District of New York, working with people across the aisle, do you consider the political division in this country to be a crisis, or is this just another generational challenge that we will deal with and overcome? I think it's a generational challenge. I also don't think it's unique to the U.S. what we're going through. We have seen, whether it's the elections in the U.K., um, in other European countries, that there seems to be a growing divide. Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily between political parties. I would say you're seeing a, a very geographic and socioeconomic divide between urban areas and, and real America. Uh, again, what we care about in my district is very different than what people care about in New York City, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. So I think you're seeing that trend happen, not just in the U.S., but in other countries. I also think the media tends to focus on the divisive issues. So what was interesting for me during the impeachment hearings is the media in D.C., the mainstream media, was very focused on impeachment. That's all they wanted to write about 100 percent of the time. During the course of those two weeks where there was wall-to-wall -wall media coverage, there were two pretty significant votes that I crossed the aisle. One was on the government funding, and I was one of either 12 to 20 Republicans who did so. And the other one was on the reauthorization of the Export-Import Bank, which some conservatives have criticized. I represent manufacturers and companies that depend upon the Export-Import Bank, so I also crossed the aisle on that vote as well. That almost got no coverage. And I think that's interesting in today's yeah, media right. environment that, again, 100% focus on the partisan impeachment process, not as much focus on the bipartisan political independence and policy independence. I think the media was also busy mourning the death of Soleimani a little bit <laughs> in, some, in some regards. Yeah, and I, I was extremely disappointed with how the media covered not only um, the death of Soleimani, which I believe was a successful counter-terrorist military strike in an operational theater, but they're also not covering the Iranian protests of people who are speaking right. out against the regime. Right. And I, I think, again, the disconnect between the media and what people care about, it's why you're seeing alternative news sources really thrive in this media environment. It's no longer the case that the New York Times and the Washington Post have a monopoly over readership. If anything, I think they've become less potent and less powerful uh, in terms of representing the views or listening to the views of Americans outside of, of New York City or Washington, D.C. So you talk about, interestingly, it's not so much the political division, it's a lot of times socioeconomic, it's geographic. I find one of the most mind-boggling statistics from the 2016 cycle, the fact that one-eighth of Senator Bernie Sanders' primary supporters, Democrats, ended up supporting President Trump in the general election. And right now, you're seeing Bernie Sanders surge in the polls. Some people are even saying he's he I mean, the, 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 the betting markets, he's just been skyrocketing. Right, and those which, are, and those better, are than better than pundits. Put the money where the mouth is. So... What do you think of Bernie Sanders' rise, especially as we talk about, you know, finding ways to foster unity in this country? What do you make of that? Well, in my district, it's interesting because I share a media market with Senator Sanders. So the Burlington media market covers the northeastern part of my district. And Bernie Sanders actually won the Democratic primary when he ran for president last time. Hillary Clinton did not win the Democratic primary in my district. 
Um, so, you know, clearly he struck a chord with a portion of Democratic, a portion of the Democratic electorate. And I think a similar chord that he struck to President Trump in the Republican primary is this feeling that the establishment and the status quo is not working. Hillary Clinton symbolizes the establishment. Right, she symbolizes right. the status quo. And obviously that was not a message that resonated, certainly in the primary in my district it didn't resonate and it didn't resonate in the general election. So I do think it's interesting. What I do know is that this shift towards socialism or democratic socialism, however they want to define it, that is not palatable to the vast majority of Americans who understand that we are not a socialist nation and I think will really make their voices heard at the polls. But it's interesting, I mean, a couple months ago, actually with a local paper, The Chronicle, I, they asked me who was gonna win, and I said, oh, probably Elizabeth Warren. That's wrong. So <laughs> I'm very bad at predicting. That's what I found over the past couple years. Well, when the New York Times endorses her in a week, maybe, yeah. that, maybe that'll well, change Well, maybe, yeah. maybe <laughs> that's good news, so please keep predicting Democrats <laughs> to win, yeah. and then they won't win. That's what we would I don't like. predict, and I feel like I'm in a very strong position running in re-election, because I'm running on my record of my results, and um, you know, my opponent is raising money off of trashy Stefanik. She can defend that. It's, it's, right. it's horrible. Um, but it's it's certainly an exciting time. So you talk about the establishment, people, outsiders versus the establishment. And in some major ways, you have differed from the Republican establishment. You were one of, I believe, eight congresspeople to support the Equality Act. You supported the Paris Climate Agreements. And you voted against the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Would you like to see more Ameri more? Republicans kind of taking this tack to the middle? Or do you think these are issues that are unique to your district and don't need to be applied nationally? I, what I found in this position is that you represent your constituents and we have a diverse electorate in this country. So I try to focus 100% on representing my constituents and every vote I take is not gonna make everybody happy, but uh, I try to make sure that I'm channeling what I think the vast majority of my constituents support. And I also think it's important that you keep your promises as a candidate and then an elected official. So on the tax vote, which I got some criticism for, um, I promised that I wouldn't vote to raise taxes, and certainly the Democratic talking points about how that was a tax hike was, were totally wrong. It was a tax cut overall, but the issue in New York State is we have such high state and local taxes and high property taxes, which is a crisis at the state level. We're seeing a huge amount of brain drain and mass exodus from the state. I viewed it as double taxation for people not able to um, they're not able to write off their state and local taxes. So that was the reason why I voted against the tax bill. And that was keeping my promise as a candidate when I said I wouldn't vote ever to raise anybody's taxes. On marriage equality, I think that is an issue that is also shifting. Sometimes I get questions broadly about social issues and how that's changing among millennials. I, I really divide the social issues up into different issues because polling shows different uh, really on marriage equality that's moving faster and I think you, if you look at conservative numbers pro-life uh, conservatives continue to be very pro-life even if they are Millennials uh, but I, I again that's about keeping my promises I ran on uh, non-discrimination based on sexual orientation and that's how I voted one more question on the tax thing so Senator Rubio ultimately supported the bill but he also took some flack from the Wall Street Journal editorial board and others for saying Maybe we don't need to cut the corporate tax rate so low, we should devote that money to expanding the child tax credit. Is that the type of policy, policy that you think the Republicans should be leaning more into, or should tax cutting still be the ultimate goal? 
I think tax reform, so that is a combination of tax cuts and making sure that we are making strategic investments like the child tax credit. I disagree with Senator Rubio. I do think if you look at the corporate tax rate issue, we were the highest corporate tax rate in the world. And making sure that we are competitive, particularly when we're in a global economy, and we want to make sure that we're exporting our products, and we want to make sure that businesses choose to be headquartered in the United States, and they're not going to places like Ireland and other where they have such a, a lower corporate tax rate. So I did support the um, lowering of the corporate tax cut, and I supported the child tax credit. I think that we can do more to augment the child tax credit. I also think that we should be looking at innovative ways in the tax code to tackle the student debt crisis. So one of the policy ideas that I've put out there is allowing businesses, similar to what they do on Capitol Hill, to contribute to the student loan repayments of their employees, but making that tax deductible for the business. Every business I've talked to in my district likes that idea. It's It will be similar to a 401k, but I'm finding that as I talk to millennials, which every millennial should be investing in their 401k because it's important <laughs> yeah. for retirement savings, but some are choosing not to because they're so burdened by paying off that student right. loan debt. Um, so we should, businesses should be incentivized to making that investment in their workforce. So I think we have time for one more question here. Um, you mentioned the exodus of people from places like New York and you talk about student debt. Something, having grown up in upstate New York and something that we talk about a lot, are that, for example, public universities in New York lag other heavily populated states. Um, California obviously comes to mind, Florida, um, Texas. I went to public school in Virginia. What is the federal government's role in promoting public university education in states like New York? Where, I mean, I don't think there are any, any top 50 public universities there, whereas, you know, compared to UNC or Michigan or Berkeley, is there anything the federal government can be doing to promote public university education in New York? That's a great question. Um, you know, there are success stories of certain public universities in my district. I think some of the local leadership of the community colleges, SUNY Adirondack, has done a great job of really doing a deep dive as to what skill sets are needed in the 21st century economy locally and making sure that they have certificate or associate's degrees focused on that. I do think the federal government can reorient towards more flexible higher ed concepts. So for so long there was a focus on a one-size-fits-all four-year liberal arts degree. That's what I have and it's it's a great uh, bachelor, it's a great you know way to start your career but it's not for everybody and we need to look at skills training, we need to look at effective workforce development. I think pushing and incentivizing public universities at the state level to do that would really make sure that they're more competitive and they're not continuing to pursue the same, the same cookie cutter approach that they have for so long. All right, we're gonna close it out with some rapid fire questions, you ready? This is like a debate in the district. There's always the rapid fire at the end. Rapid fire. New York City or upstate New York? Upstate New York, that's the oh, that's easiest New rapid fire I've ever had. <laughs> All right, is Eli Manning a Hall of Famer? Is Eli Manning a Hall of Famer? Oh, I'm bad at sports questions. I don't know. She, she well, just said no to New York City, so she doesn't have to. She doesn't have to lobby well, the, for the, the Giants. The, the question as written is Eli or Tom Brady, but as a Brady fan, Brady, I, I don't. Oh, Brady, Brady, is, okay. Brady is for sure. Oh, I don't know how to answer that. Okay. Veep or House of Cards? Veep, way more accurate. House of Cards is not accurate at all. Veep is hilariously. Now accurate. this could. This next one could be problematic for your voters in the district. Device issue. Taylor Swift or Carrie Underwood? Probably Carrie Underwood. Did you prefer middle school or high school? <laughs> I, I liked both. Probably middle school. Ooh, Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's a rare answer. 
Well, Congresswoman Stefanik, thank you so much for joining us. What a delight. This was so fun. I love banter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you so much. Now for a quick break to hear from our sponsor, the AEI Summer Honors Academic Programs team. We've got a native of the team with us today. Gil, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what it is you do here? Hi, my name is Gil Guerra. I work in the academic programs team. I focus on schools in D.C. as well as the Northeast. And I'm here to talk about the Summer Honors Program. What is the Summer Honors Program and why should I have done that as a college student? Well, the Summer Honors Program is an opportunity to study alongside some of the leading scholars in the world here at AEI, but more than just an opportunity to be able to analyze some of the most pressing public policy issues. It's also an opportunity to do that in a setting that is ideologically diverse. Do we get to own the libs in the class? The <laughs> <laughs> well, libs might own you. It's pretty That's the beauty of the program. The competition of ideas. The competition of ideas. Gil, thank you so much. Thank you. Everyone, apply Summer Honors Program. How do you do it again? You go on our websites. Go on the website, AEI.org. Org. Just Google AEI Summer <laughs> Honors. You will find it. Thank you very much, Congresswoman Stefanik, for taking the time, and thank you to our listeners. Now, we also have to plug, as always, the new Banter newsletter. Write to us at banter at AEI.org. That is banter at AEI.org. And let us know if you want to be a part of it, because it is the best thing I read each week. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be a well-thought-out email. I mean, we, the favorite one I got was just a simple no no body to the header. Put me on that blank email list. And we did. We'll take it. And we we love that guy. We, we're and, happy that we email We could list. not believe that it was from Chuck Grassley. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, before we go to Max Frost, your story about Mexico, do you, can I read a recent comment? And Do you want to read another? Of course. We've had, some, we've had a lot of iTunes reviews recently. And so here's one. And this is from Kligruba on iTunes Podcasts. Learned about you from David French when he mentioned your podcast on Twitter. Yes, he did, by the way. Side note, David French mentioned us. It was very kind of him. Enjoyed this episode and have subscribed. I will listen in the future and listen to the earlier podcasts. Well, thank you very much, Klee Gruba. We really appreciate <laughs> it. And David French was very kind to us on Twitter, and we hope you enjoy future episodes. My favorite comment we got recently was a guy named Jimmy Dimmy, who says, surprisingly good. I expected to bail quickly based on how young these guys sound, but I found myself wanting more by the end of the Flanagan episode. Pretty, pretty good. And I'll just read one more while we're here by Muzzy El Grande, our fans of the best names ever, who says, On the rise. Banter's quality of guests just keeps going up. Blah, blah, blah. Surfer bro is a winner. First of all, I don't know. Someone called me surfer dude on a review, and then someone else called me surfer dude. Now it's surfer bro. I don't know where this is coming from. I'm criticized for being the least chill guy. I'm not a sur. I've never touched a surf. Because you do every podcast uh, shirtless. <laughs> That's right. Well... <laughs> Good thing we're not on YouTube. All right, Max, you went to Mexico recently. You have a story for us. I do have a story. So I went to Mexico City for a week, family vacation for New Year's, and I stayed a couple extra days, and I visited the state of Oaxaca, an hour's flight, 300 miles to the south of Mexico City. Oaxaca is well-known for a number of reasons. One thing that's interesting about it is that it sends a large, a very disproportionate share of illegal immigrants to the U.S., and I think even legal migrants to the U.S. from Mexico come from Oaxaca. And I had read about this. And we were there. And I was with my brother. We were in a village a little bit outside the capital, Oaxaca City. We're at the bus station, taking a bus back to the city. And this guy is working the thing, trying to sell his bus tickets. And he speaks perfect English. And he starts saying, where are you from? And we said, America. And they said, oh, which part? You know, I told him the whole thing. And we said, where are you from? And he said, here. 
And we're like, why do you speak English so well? And he goes, well, I lived in, he, goes, he said, I visited the United States. I said, really? When? I said, 13 years ago. I said, how long? You speak great English. He goes, four hours. Huh. And I was like, <laughs> like what? He's like, four hours. Crossed the border, got picked up on the other side, picked up by a Mexican-American sheriff, driven back to the border and dropped off on the other side, never tried to go back again. And I said, what? Like, was it scary? What was the thing? And he goes, no, it wasn't scary. The guy was Mexican. He had brown skin, just like this. Nicest guy I ever met. He just said, sorry, man, got to go. Took me back across the border, dumped me off there. And that was it. His name was Willibaldo. He had this fantastic personality. He said he worked in Puerto Vallarta at a hotel full of American tourists, which is where he learned to speak English with a perfect American accent. And this guy was working a bus station in a Mexican village where he's probably being paid a few hundred dollars a month. I mean, this was insane. I couldn't wrap my head around it. And he even said, I was like, so you learned English working in Puerto Vallarta? He said, yeah, I own a timeshare there. <laughs> like complete American sense of humor. He had the whole thing. It was interesting. It made me think, first of all, this dude should probably be in the U.S. I mean, like this guy, you, you know, you meet someone and you're like, I want this guy on my team. This guy seems smart, funny, competent. I think this speaks to an important element of our immigration debate, which is how do you regulate group-based immigration versus case-by-case situations? And it's hard to listen to a story like that and not have a lot of sympathy for the man. Well, I said to him, so in Mexico, a lot of the people that come, they pay thousands of dollars to, they're called coyotes yeah. and human traffickers. And they bring them across the border and that a lot of people really? die. Yeah. And he said he didn't do anything. He said he literally just found a spot. He heard of a spot in the desert, walked across four hours in the desert, and car came zooming up, and that was it. But you he know, said the guy would, could not have been nicer to him. I have a similar experience. I'm from a small town in southwest Florida, which is by one of the biggest migrant farm worker areas in the country. And you you meet a lot of the migrant farm workers, almost all from Mexico, and they're delightful people. They're hardworking, salt of the earth, value family. But they're very mistreated by landlords because they don't speak English, because many of them don't have proper documentation, even the ones who are legally here working on the farms. And it does raise questions of, we understand mass migration is a big issue, but can't you as an American and with a heart see some of these situations and say, maybe we could be a little more lenient? What is America about? The question is, do we have enough resources? What do well, you think? To, I mean, to me, I'm 100% open to any argument that we should cut back on legal immigration. If someone wants to make the argument in good faith, fine. The issue is when people come back, you know, the, the Trump thing. Some murderers, rapists, some, I presume, are good people. Well, almost all of them are good people. But, you know, if you want to make the argument about jobs and that kind of stuff, I'm completely open to that. Sure. But I you guess can't it do falls it. to me to, to be the uh, immigration hardliner here. There's... 7 billion people in the world assume half those people are good people, 3.5 billion people. It's, it's the, the job of the U.S. immigration policy is not to find good people and just let everybody come if they want to. No, but if you're going to argue if you're going to argue that we shouldn't be letting Mexican immigrants in because they're rapists and murderers when nearly all of them are not. I think this is a very difficult question because it's very different than what you would do if you have a home and someone in a refugee comes to your doorstep and wants help. Then that's something where you with your resources, if you're able, even if you don't have great resources, I think as a Christian, as a good person, whatever faith you worship, you should accommodate that person, help that person. But when it's a government, the morals of a government, I think, are not the same as as they are for an individual. And so when it comes to accommodating sympathetic situations, it's sometimes like, can we do it? Should we do it? Is it within our prerogative to do it? And for America, do you guys think we're in a position to accommodate a continued mass migration from our southern border? Are we in a position to do it? Because they are good people. I think- Almost entirely. You know, it's, it's a very difficult debate. I mean, you guys have probably heard me argue about this before. Absolutely. Where I think that there's- 
certainly, and I, I mean, people debate whether this is true or not. To me, there's certainly an argument that illegal immigration has very negative effects on wages. I mean, it's obviously, it's contentious. People can argue it either way. But to me, it makes sense. And I, I told you guys a story. I know someone, someone um, who I knew, they were looking for an illegal immigrant to hire because they said the wages paid to the people in the new town they moved to were too high to do work on their house. But the wages paid to the legal people working here is the market rate. The other people are working essentially on a black market below the market rate. And that's not right. It's not fair. Well, yeah. And why do you think Trump had such a huge amount of support in the Republican primary? It's because the Republican Party has lots of voters that work in the types of industries where they think the government should have my back. They should not be letting in labor that's going to undercut I mean, me. And the I, government just flat out and decided you, not to You guys have heard fears. me say this before, but I think a lot of that was also a reaction to fear about cultural shift, a turning of the tide. And I think people, multiculturalism is against our tribal instincts. And so when you see slow cultural changes like ESPN Deportes, menus in Spanish, traffic signs in Spanish, all of a sudden the, the country a lot of people have come to know and love, it's changing. And I think people are afraid of change. And so I don't think we should be terrified by changing demographics in this country. So I, I just want to make sure it's for the right reasons. If it really is for the jobs, let's make sure it's for the jobs because I don't hear that. But what is the point of a democratic government? It's to give the policies that people want. And we can debate people's motives all the time. But if a critical mass of people want a certain policy, it, it kind of is the point of, of a democracy to implement that policy. And you look at polls all the time that people are okay with the more or less the current amount of immigration. Not many people want to increase immigration at all. And we can debate till we're blue in the face and try to change their minds. And I think there are very compelling reasons to admit lots and lots and lots of more skilled immigrants. But I don't think it's very productive to sit here and kind of cast dispersions about certain people not being as okay with change as I am when the point of a democracy is to give the voters what they want. Yeah, but the politicians should be setting, they're setting the signals. So this you could get a moderate Republican or a Democrat. You could get anyone up there to say, look, I want to cut back on illegal immigration. The Mexican people are fantastic. It has nothing to do with the origin of the people. If these were Canadians, I would say the same exact thing. But instead, what we have right now is someone who is addressing illegal immigration. But at least when Trump announced his campaign, it was seemingly on the grounds of race, which is very, which is despicable. I totally agree. But yeah. we've had before that decades of politicians saying all in agreement with the so-called gang of eight immigration bill, which is massive amnesty for everyone here who came illegally and not much reform to stem the tide at all. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's a shame that Trump took the approach he did when it actually is something we need to address in a different way. David Frum always but, says, he says this in The Atlantic all the time, that if you tell people that only fascists are going to support borders, people are going to turn to a fascist. Look, that's but I, I, this is an area I disagree with Congresswoman Stefanik on. She talked about how her fundamental duty is to represent the 21st District of New York. And I don't disagree with that. What I do disagree with is an approach where you're almost step-by-step step matching your votes, your movements, everything with exactly what the people want. And if you went by what the people want, things like Teddy Roosevelt wouldn't have had dinner with Booker T. Washington in the West Wing. A lot of people didn't like that. That's called moral leadership. That's called going beyond, I think, some of our initial visceral reactions. And so if this is an initial visceral reaction to immigration that's not positive, even if the people want it, I think moral leadership calls for a stance against this and to potentially overcome it, unless it's coming from the right place. And that's very different. Well, the immigration debate is one that we could go on forever about, and I'm sure we'll come back to it in due time. But for now, thank you all for listening. Send us an email at banter at aei.org. Get on that mailing list. We are more than happy to put you there. 
And we'll be back next week with another terrific episode, and we'll see you then. 